if you're ready. Junior doctors are striking, but it's not only trainees who are feeling embattled, with GPs in England reportedly under more pressure than at any time since the NHS began in 1948. I'm Gareth Iacobucci, reporter at the BMJ, and I'm here at the Nuffield Summit 2016 speaking to Kande Simerson, Director of Policy at the Nuffield Trust, about the issues facing the primary care workforce. First of all, uh, Kande, I wanted to ask you to kind of help us um, establish some context here, set the scene um, in our discussion of primary care workforce. I think it's widely accepted that there are some real recruitment problems at the moment um, and that this is having a real um, you know, negative impact on the way general practice operates and primary care more widely. Um, what do you think the root causes are of, of some of the current issues and um, perhaps after that sort of could we discuss um, you know, ways of tackling these um, obviously in the context of the report that you were involved in last year on, on this? So primary care is facing a number of very significant challenges. Um, if you go into practically any GP practice across the country and talk to them about recent experience of trying to recruit their new GP partners, they will describe a very challenging experience often. And there's some areas of the country where they've actually given up trying to recruit a new GP. And you will also find that if you talk to GPs that they talk to you a lot about the stress that they are under, the stress that they feel within primary care and the, the reducing sense of morale that there exists there. So there are some very significant problems. So what lies behind that? Um, well, one of the graphs that we have within the Primary Care Workforce Commission report shows the proportion of the medical workforce that primary care has taken up over the last years. And it's quite a stark graph because it shows that proportionately primary care has fallen as a proportion of the medical workforce. And yet at the same time, all the policy rhetoric is about shifting care into the community, primary care having more dominant and significant role. And we know that it needs that role to manage our population of people with multiple chronic diseases who actually most of their care is delivered through the general practice. Those older, frail people, yes, they will have admissions to hospital, but actually they are the biggest users of primary care services. So GPs have faced a double whammy. While proportionately they've been invested less in as a workforce, the actual workload that they're facing has increased significantly. Okay, sure. Um, and in terms of sort of ways of tackling this, I mean, obviously, um, you know, the, the, some solutions have been put forward in, in the report and by others, but how difficult a task is it to sort of bring these changes about quickly enough so that sort of um, some of the more ambitious um, ideas that have been put forward with regards to, for example, new models of care in the NHS to sort of to actually help them um, become a reality because obviously GPs and primary care are, are pretty central to that. Well I think the good news here is that um, there are significant opportunities to reshape primary care and that was a vision that we set out in the Primary Care Workforce Commission report because historically primary care has been a bit of a one-size-fits-all service. Most of primary care delivered by GPs, maybe with a few nurses supporting them and maybe one or two healthcare assistants supporting them. But actually many of the needs that people bring 
to those GPs actually don't necessarily need a GP and actually maybe would benefit more from people who've got other skills, particularly, for example, pharmacists. So when we went out um, as part of the Workforce Commission work to visit practices who'd been doing interesting things, we went to one practice, for example, in Bristol, where they have um, a pharmacist who's a partner in the practice. That pharmacist is not only taking on a workload of managing patients with chronic disease, they're supporting um, medications reviews across the practice, they're actually supporting improvement activity across the practice. It's improved the prescribing of that practice and actually you go into that practice and it has a really buoyant sense of morale. It's a practice that really feels that it's on top of the workload that's being presented to it. There are other opportunities. Physiotherapists could be taking on a significant number of the people with musculoskeletal problems. That's a big part of the GP workload. You've got um, many children going into general practice. What about children's nurses supporting them? Again, mental health. So actually, you could come out of this with a real win-win solution by providing a mix of staff that are more clearly aligned to the needs of the patients that the practice is serving, the patient's benefits, and actually the practice benefits, because it's not totally reliant on the traditional workforce model. Sure. Um, so is that just about sort of communicating those messages and those sort of successful examples, or is, does it need funding as well? It obviously needs, it needs a bit of both, I suppose. Um. Absolutely. But I think the funding point is incredibly important. So let's take pharmacy as an example. It does take time to support pharmacists to take on that extended role. And the areas that have done that have often had support from Health Education England with, with budgets to support the training of those pharmacists, giving support for backfill, and it can take a considerable period of time. So, um, And one of the things that we're very concerned about is that the Health Education England budget, which it has available to do that type of work, is significantly under threat and is probably being cut by the recent rounds. And it was anyway a very small proportion of their budget so it was about 250 million out of the four and a half billion that they spend on training staff for the future in the, the previous world if you if you looked at it in the time of Blair when we were pumping money into the NHS like there was no tomorrow you could you could rightfully I think have gone to the providers and said you've got the money you do this for yourselves but we are they that if you sit yourself in a provider position or indeed a GP practice position it's modernise yourself, reinvent yourself, but at the same time pull money out of your system. We're not giving you double running costs. We're not doing, you know, we're sort of like pulling the rug under the feet of somebody who's desperately trying to do this new work. But that could potentially sort of undermine efforts to um, embed these types of schemes Absolutely. more widely. And that yeah. seems... Um to us a huge concern. So on the one hand, we have a political rhetoric that talks about new models of care. We can see that there are opportunities to use the workforce in a different way to support those new models. But at the same time, we're stripping out the resources that might facilitate that workforce change. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, uh, from your presentation this morning, you know, that, that was a point that you raised very clearly. Um, I mean, in, in terms of... Um, the, I guess, the morale issue. I mean, how much of what is going on with, say, the juniors at the moment, the junior doctors, does that kind of permeate 
into sort of other areas of the NHS, like primary care, for example. I, I'm just interested in whether you think that sort of they're all interlinked in a way. I think the government takes huge risks um, when it relates to such a key part of its workforce in the way that has, has happened through the recent dispute. Um, I don't, I'm not privy to information as to how primary care has reacted to it. Sure. Um, but I know the point was certainly made by a speaker earlier on that sort of it would be unwise of the government to sort of pursue the line that they have with the juniors, but at the same time not engage consultants and GPs in terms of the sort of seven-day agenda. I, I think I'm talking about it in that context and that actually primary care is absolutely vital for that too. Um, and obviously that again will have resource implications as well. And I know certainly from speaking to GPs that they feel that um, that, that hasn't quite been sort of um, explained in, in enough detail about how that's going to work. I mean, did, did the Workforce Commission touch on on seven day services or, or um, you know, extended hours as, as part of its work or? No, it didn't, but clearly that um, adds to the potential pressure that um, GPs feel that they're under. And I think um, I would argue that if you want seven-day services, you need to be very careful about exactly which needs you're meeting and why, and um, you need to pursue an evidence-based approach to seven-day services. This is not something that should be about political rhetoric. Sure. And um, just to round off, I mean, were there any other mess key messages um, that sort of link to what we've been talking about that that you feel have been raised today that are important that you know our audience would would um, benefit from hearing? So I think there's a key message about the role that technology is going to play in this. It really is a key part of the jigsaw of this of this new way of working in the future. And it is going to facilitate and enable um, staff to work in different ways. It's going to help patients take more control of their health and care. It's going to help carers support patients better. So I think that's a really key part of the jigsaw. And the good news is that we have had some investment in information technology and primary care. There's a great foundation to work on there. Sure. Okay, thanks very much.